Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 8 So from love of country, now he goes to history. History may be servitude. History may be freedom. See, now they vanish, the faces and places with the self which, as it could, love them, to become renewed, transfigured in another pattern. We have to pause here to see what he's doing. History may be servitude, history may be freedom. He's treating those the same. I, this, this very moment, I think of uh, Kipling, uh, if you can treat, if you can treat with triumph, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. History may be freedom, history may be servitude, but that's not what history is about. You see, history is not about freedom or servitude. History is not about wealth or poverty. History is not about externals. One could be a slave and be saved. One could be free and be damned. That's not what history is about. One goes back and reads some of those otherwise very odd passages in Paul. And Paul essentially says, if you're free, don't allow yourself to be made a slave. And if you're a slave, don't struggle to be free. Because you might miss the point. So history may be servitude, history may be freedom, but that is not its fundamental pattern. And if you look at a scene that's far enough removed from yourself so that you're not immediately tripped up into, into taking sides in it, you will notice some other pattern. See, now looking far enough back, if you look far enough back, see, now they vanish. The faces and places with the self which, as it could, love them. To be, to become renewed, transfigured in another pattern. History has another pattern. And so he wants to alert us to, to history's other pattern. So that we can live in history, behave in history, according to the true history of the world. Remember Martin, uh, Martin Buber's said the Bible is the record of the true history of the world. The next line is, Sin is behoovely, but all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Now, that's a, a line from uh, Juliana of Norwich, English mystic. And the word behoovely means necessary or useful. Sin is behoovely. But all shall be well. So, so it's true that we will, we will be attached. We, we will, we will sin in that sense. There's no, it's, it's, it's unavoidable. But on, in retrospect, this is the use of memory for liberation. To remember and to see the real pattern 
that we missed by being too caught up in the superficial pattern. So now he's going to remember the, the, the poet is, for all intents and purposes, standing at the chapel at Little Gidding. And he is recalling the history of the chapel of Little, uh, at Little Gidding, which, uh, which chapel played a small but uh, um, significant, certainly for Eliot, role in the English Civil War. And Eliot is living in the, in, in the midst of what might be called the European Civil War. World War II, World War II. And he's thinking back 300 years to the English Civil War. The English Civil War was the war between the Laudians, the Anglicans, and the Puritans. In other words, the war between two Christian groups. And World War II is a war between European Christian nations. Germany and Italy, France and England, etc., etc., another kind of Christian civil war. And so he begins to... So the question is, well, uh, Elliot, uh, you've got one right there in front of you. Why don't you look at it? Why, why are you looking back at this one 300 years ago? Well, that's exactly the point. To look back at one earlier because it is with the use of memory that one can appreciate the real pattern. So he says, if I think again of this place, meaning little getting, and of people not wholly commendable, of no immediate kin or kindness, and that's the, exactly the ingredient that he's looking for. Because in retrospect, I can I can see that uh, that they're not wholly commendable. Neither side in the conflict was wholly commendable. Whereas if I'm right up against it, you see, if it's a contemporary issue, and somehow I have been scandalized into being taking a partisan part in this, I may I may understand my side as being wholly commendable and the other side as being wholly contemptible. But in retrospect, I can look back and see that neither side was wholly commendable. And even more importantly, of no immediate kin or kindness. That is to say, I don't immediately affiliate with one of the sides. 300 years has passed. I can look back and I'm a, I have a, with a little more equanimity. I can appreciate the two sides better than if it were happening right here in my lap. Of no, of no immediate kin or kindness, but some of peculiar genius, some of the people that live there, of peculiar genius, all touched by a common genius. All touched, and, and I would say, you, you could use this, uh, touched variously. Some touched more deeply than others, but all at least lightly touched by a common genius. And the common genius that they've been lightly touched by is Christ. You see, it's a Christian civil war. All touched by a common genius. And I, in, in the, in the, benefiting from 300 years of perspective, can appreciate that. I can now see the thing in a larger perspective. 
all touched by a common genius, united in the strife which divided them. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. United in the strife which divided them. If I think of a king at nightfall, and that's Charles I, you know, fleeing to Little Gidding after his military defeat and being then arrested and taken and beheaded. So Eliot is now thinking about the prominent people in the in uh, the English Civil War. If I think of a king at nightfall, of three men and more on the scaffold, now the three men and more on the scaffold would be Charles I and Archbishop w- William Loud and the Earl of Strafford, who were the prominent, uh, the, there were more, but who were the prominent uh, uh, publicly executed uh, victims of that civil war. But though that's a specific reference to them, it is also a reference that nobody who has been even lightly touched by the common genius uh, would miss. Three men on a scaffold is a clear Christian reference. In other words, these three men the particular three men that died in the English Civil War, can be seen with 300 years perspective, one begins to see behind them, so to speak, the three crosses uh, on the hill in the Christian story. One begins to see that they are not only, that they are, that they are representatives of the archetypal victims of the conflict. Elliot, I think, is just a genius at at putting layers on the picture. Were we standing uh, in the crowd witnessing the public execution, we would be, having been scandalized by the Civil War, we would be reacting, uh, we'd be relating to the situation in such a way as to miss the point. Charles I is beheaded, and we, depending on where we are, some of us would be saying, my Lord and Sovereign has been has been killed by the mob. And some of us would be saying, the son of a bitch got it in the neck. We would be caught up in it. 300 years perspective, and with the help of a great poet, we begin to see that this is the way mobs are and that we as Christians are in, uh, have, uh, have expressed an allegiance to the victims of that sort of thing. And we begin to recognize something about the pattern of history lived in its, if you allow me to use the Girardian term, in its mimetic configuration. So that, again, it's this distance. Eliot wants to say, Nobody in Eliot's environment had time to go back and think about the English Civil War. For God's sakes, the German bombs were falling. And Eliot says, you can't understand it by looking at this thing that's happening right in front of us. You're too much in it. The world is too much with us night and morn, as words were said. You've got to look back. This is the use of memory. To, to what? The use of memory is to see the real pattern of history. 
And here everybody is caught up in the in a very dynamic version of the apparent pattern of history. And Eliot is not going to be able to, to call attention to the real pattern by talking about the English and the German. It's just, it can't happen. So he looks back 300 years and we begin to see a pattern because we're detached. So here we are. If I think of a king at nightfall, of three men and more on the scaffold, and a few who died forgotten in other places here and abroad, and of one who died blind and quiet, John Milton, why should we celebrate these dead men more than the dying? And he's talking about the people dying in World War II. Now that is a long sentence. The sentence starts with, if I think again of this place and of these people, and of the people who died in, in this 300-year-old civil war, why should we celebrate these dead men more than the dying? And that was the question that Eliot's generation would have had for him because he was suspected of being a kind of antiquarian anyway, you see, out of touch with what's going on. So he's answering his critics before the question arises. Why are we concerned with that? Because he's giving us an example of the use of memory. When he looks back, what does he see? Does he see glory? Does he see triumph? Does he see winners? Does he see victory? Does he see a great cultural accomplishment? No. When he looks back, he sees a defeated and beheaded king, three men on a scaffold, a few who died forgotten in other places here and abroad, and one, John Milton, who died blind and quiet. When one looks back, one sees the victims and or the defeated ones. And that, I think, is because the nature of the Christian revolution it's turning the world upside down, is such that the victors are incapable of transmitting via the victory a specifically Christian truth to those who come after them. What is specifically Christian in history emanates from Anne Frank and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and not from Winston Churchill and Douglas MacArthur. And in retrospect, one knows that. Anyone who has been touched by this common genius, even lightly touched, we know that when we look back. And Eliot looks back and he sees those. Now, had Eliot been there, he would have been on the side of Archbishop Loud and the Anglicans. His opponents would have been the Puritans. And Andrew Marvell and John Milton were Puritans. And they are the ones that produced the great poetry. And they are the ones that lost. And even as they, and even in the period when they were winning, as to say, Charles II's being beheaded, they themselves were enough touched by the common genius 
to recognize that it's only the defeated ones and the victims who are capable of transmitting a specifically Christian truth to those that live on after them. Andrew Marvell witnessed Charles I's beheading, and he was an opponent of Charles I, and here's what he wrote about it. And this is a passage in a poem about it. He nothing, this is as he is being beheaded, he nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene, but bowed his comely head down as upon a bed. Now, this is his political opponent writing about the execution of Charles I. Touched by that common genius, he, he recognizes at that intense moment, maybe dimly recognizes, but recognizes that only the defeated one and, and the victims can communicate to us a specifically Christian message about the meaning of history. So Eliot says, you ask me, and since he's saying, you ask, why should we celebrate these dead men more than the dying? We've got boys out there on the, in the trenches dying right now. What am I doing talking about this old war for? And then he wants to reassure his contemporaries. It is not to ring the bell backward, nor is it an incantation to summon the specter of a rose. So it's not just some antiquarian thing. It's not because he has a, he has a, a fondness particularly for, uh, for, uh, a, a divine, the divine right of kings or something. Not an incantation to summon the specter of a rose. Now, throughout, Eliot had, because he was such a student of Dante, Eliot understood the rose, the, the roses at the culmination of Dante's journey at the, at, in the, at the end of paradise, the celestial rose is the, is the last great vision that Dante has of the meaning of life and the meaning of the cosmos. And Eliot had learned that from Dante and had known that that's that that really is where you have to arrive. But he says here, in so many words, I think, that he is not going to try to arrive there by taking any cheap shortcut. He is not looking back in order to just live in some imagined uh, uh, resolution of the problem that's in the past. The specter of the rose is not the rose. We can't go back and reread Dante and pretend that in, that in 1990 we have, we, we, we understand the rose. We have to earn it the same way he did. So Eliot says, I'm not, we're not going back to, to conjure it up again. But at the same time, Eliot understood that that is in fact what has to happen. For instance, in The Hollow Men, he said, in this last of meeting places, we grope together and avoid speech, gathered on this beach of the Tumid River. And Eliot's metaphor for this emotional, tepid emotionality, for this lack of feeling, is the, is the sunken river. So we gather to avoid speech on this beach of the Tumid River, sightless, unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star multifoliate rose 
of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. The multifoliate rose is Dante's rose. And in order to arrive at the rose, we, have, we, we will never arrive at the rose unless the eyes reappear. The eyes of Beatrice. The eyes that when they look at us, stir up that libido that is the sunken river. The tumid river. And until the eyes come on the scene again, We'd have no access to the multifoliate rose. The eyes are the eyes that look at us and suddenly we feel it stirring. The ardor, the longing, the desire. Let me read the whole passage through. In this last of meeting places, we grope together and avoid speech gathered on this beach of the tumid river, sightless, unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose, of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. There are two visions of the pattern of history. The pattern of history, the real history, salvation history, real history, what Martin Buber calls the real history of the world, is symbolized in the multifoliate rose. But if we do not have those eyes and remain sightless and remain encamped along the tumid river, then we will become endlessly involved in the other pattern of history, not the pattern of the, 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 the uh, universal pattern of the multifoliate rose, but this other parody of it. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear. That's history. That's the superficial history. And we can't move from the one to the other unless the eyes come and, and stir this kind of longing. And then we submit ourselves to, its, to, the, to the struggle and sometimes pain of transformation of that longing. Let me pick up the echo in, in uh, the Divine Comedy in the Canto 30 and 31 of the Purgatorio. Beatrice says, again speaking to the three, uh, three virtues about Dante, turning my mild and youthful eyes into his soul, I let him see their shining and led him by the straight way, his face to the right goal. Those are those eyes. She says in the Purgatorio, I used my eyes to awaken something in him and to get him going in the right direction. And the virtues say in Canto 33 to Dante, she, Beatrice is veiled and the veil is taken off, and they say to Dante, look deep, look well, however your eyes may smart. We have led you now before those emeralds from which love shot his arrow through your heart. Look at those eyes again. And Dante says this, one of the most remarkable passages in the Purgatorio. A thousand burning passions, every one hotter than any flame, held my eyes fixed to the loosened eyes she held fixed on the griffin. The griffin is this twofold creature who is the, who is the Christ figure in this scene. So Beatrice 
is looking at the Christ and Dante is looking at Beatrice in the next camp, uh, the next uh, tercet says, like sunlight in a glass, the twofold creature shone from the deep reflection of her eyes. Now in the one, now in the other nature, the divine and human natures of Christ represented by the twofold figure of the griffin. Dante is now seeing it reflected in the eyes of Beatrice. That's what those eyes are supposed to do. They're supposed to stir the ardor and passion and desire and appetite and all the rest of it and lead us through the various difficulties and struggles and passions and transformations to the place where we, be, we see in those eyes the Christ. And Eliot had said, we're sightless unless the eyes reappear. The multifoliate rose. We get no access to the multifoliate rose without the eye. So it is not to ring the bell backward that we are thinking about this, this civil war that took place so long ago. He goes on to say, we cannot revive old factions. We cannot restore old policies or follow an antique drum. We can't go back and, and ally ourselves with Cromwell or Archbishop Loud. And therefore, we can see another pattern, a pattern that they could not see. If we were, if that civil war were closer to us in time, we might be able, when we look at it, to really and truly ally ourselves with one of the sides. If it were not 300 years, but 75, we might be able to ally ourselves with one of the sides. You see, I'm just playing around with it, but because it's at some distance, we, we can't go back and replay it. And therefore, it's something we should regard because not being able to replay it, get caught up in its, in its, uh, in its con conflict, we can see a pattern that those who were caught up in the conflict cannot see. We can become as Arjuna was, instructed by Krishna. We, we will play our part in history, but we will play it with a different understanding about what's really important. We, we, we must play the part in history. But if we learn this lesson well, we will play it differently. And the lesson to learn is that the only people who can communicate a specifically Christian mystery to those who follow after them are those who are defeated or the victims of the conflict. And therefore... Our, uh, our uh, determination to be victors, our passion to be victors will be somewhat uh, compromised. These men, now talking about the participants of the English Civil War, these men and those who opposed them and those whom they opposed accept the constitution of silence and are folded in a single party. In retrospect, with this much distance, we see them as one party. And they become, in a sense, the communion of saints because we're not, we're not caught up in the agitations that divided them. Whatever we inherit from the fortunate, we have taken from the defeated what they had to leave us, a symbol, a symbol perfected in death. And... and uh, the ultimate symbol perfected in death is the crucifixion. 
So whatever it is we inherit from the fortunate, and we do inherit certain things from the fortunate, from those who, from the victors, we inherit real estate, we inherit empires, we inherit uh, control over a certain uh, uh, cluster of islands in the Pacific or whatever. We we inherit certain things, but what we take from the defeated is something else and something ultimately more precious, a symbol perfected in death. And once we understand the real pattern of history, we will attribute much more significance to that than to what we inherit from the fortunate. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. by the purification of the motive in the ground of our beseeching. I want to come back to that last line in a minute, but before I do, just to go up here about, to to speak for a minute about what we received from the defeated. When Rome was destroyed by the Visigoths, Augustine wrote the city of God and reinterpreted history. When the Puritan cause was defeated, John Milton wrote Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, and Samson Agonistic. Under the retrospective scrutiny of those who have been touched by the common genius of the Christian revelation, victories grow hollow and defeats grow resonant with deeper meaning. If we, if there's enough space between ourselves and the events that we're regarding in the past, we'll notice one thing that we become much more interested, we, those who are touched by the Christian revelation, become much more interested in the last words of those dying as victims of the mob than in all the pompous promulgations of the victors. Because we're on to another pattern. In a more light-hearted way, Christopher Fry had had done the same thing in the in the play that we studied last summer, The, the Dark is Light Enough. It's a comedy about uh, the, the uh, countess whose manor house is, is between uh, Austria and Hungary during a war. And it's, the, it's a parable about the church, and the countess is the spirit of the church. And uh, the, the refugees from the war from either side uh, eventually end up at the countess's uh, doorstep. And as the play begins, the countess has gone out into the into a snow, and for Christopher Fry, snow is the symbol of the confusion of the war. And she has gone out in the middle of the night, in the middle of the snow, to search out this one worthless creature who is about to be seized by his opponents. And she has enough affection for him to go find him. And, and while she's gone, there's a sort of chaos and anxiety in the house. Where is the countess, you see? Out in the snow, and she's in frail health beside that. Her housekeeper is looking out the window. Somebody says, what do you see? Looking out the window at night in the snow. And Bella, the housekeeper, says, the window's caked with snow, and you breathe whatever you do. Now, this image is going to come back uh, before we leave here today in another form, but the window's caked with snow. This is the problem. If you try to look at a war that's going on instead of one that's 300 years ago, 
You can't see the pattern in it. And the reason you can't see the pattern in it is because the window's caked with snow. That is to say, it's the, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the momentary zeitgeist. And it's too, too much with you for you to be able to see the true pattern. So we look for the spirit of the church. Look out through that window. We can't see it. The window's too much caked with snow. Plus, you breathe whatever you do. There's another problem. You breathe and fog up the inside of the window. So the very fact that you try to get closer to see something that is at hand further obscures what you're trying to see. You can't see it. You have to see it from a kind of perspective. And so when the countess comes back, she's calm as always, and she says, I seem to have gone floating out of this interesting present to some remote evening, a no-man's country. And now it seems to me very strange you should all be so occupied in living. So she's been to another place. And she comes... And then she says, it's the perfection of sleep to be awake from the dream. If I were going to live forever, this would be the way. Unconcerned and yet reasonably fond. Now, there's a combination of attachment and detachment. Unconcerned and yet reasonably fond. And then she says, I look far back to us all where we are living uncertain people in an uncertain time. And it seems so long ago. She's gone out and had an experience which allows her to see what's happening right now as though she's looking back at it from some other place. And that's the condition in which you can see it. And she's seeing her own time. And that's really what Elliot wants to get us to do, to be able to see our own time with the same kind of perspective that we see the English Civil War that happened 300 years ago. And, and the Countess does. And she, and she drives everybody else to distraction because they can't figure out what she's talking about. She says, I look far back to us all where we are living, uncertain people in uncertain time, and it seems so long ago. But I confuse you. To you, the time is close and sharp and prevailing. But for my sake, be like men waiting. She's seen it from some other perspective. And when, later in the play, when one of the victims who had, who had misused the household when he was on top of the, uh, you know, when the tables were turned, is now, is, is now being hounded by his opponents. And he shows up at, at her doorstep. And uh, his name's Janet, Colonel Janet. And she says to him, I know your cause is lost, but in the heart of all right causes is a cause which cannot lose. So someone touched with that common genius begins to appreciate another pattern in history. And that's what I think Elliot is trying to get us to do. The lines just before the beginning of section 4 are these. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, by the purification of the motive in the ground of our 
beseech you. Now, this is one of the problems, which is that we live, and it, and it, it is part and parcel of this problem of living in, encamped on the Tumid River, the sunken river, uh, tepid emotionality, and all of the rest of it. And that is that uh, things, uh, we, we are, we, most of the time, it's certainly true of most of us, that most of the time we are comfortable enough not to throw ourselves on our knees and beseech. Uh, and uh, and the purification and, and the motive doesn't get purified, uh, perhaps as quickly as it might, were we in a position to beseech. So. The world is such that we are delivered these opportunities for beseeching occasionally. And as Eliot's writing this poem, the bombers are coming over. And whatever else might have been said about the bombers, there were very few people, I imagine, who were saying, these bombers are giving us an opportunity to purify the ground of our motive. And, excuse me, to purify the, the, our motive in the ground of our beseeching. But that's what he's saying. The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. So the Pentecostal the bombers are still coming. But now they were in, in section two a parody of the Pentecost and now they are Pentecostal. And why? Because they are doing what has to be done before we can really receive the Spirit. And that is they're breaking the air. And I think the way to read air here is the zeitgeist. The, 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 the little set of cultural assumptions about... How, what's really going on here, you see? The atmospherics, the cultural atmospherics that remind, the myth, if you will. There's a bumper sticker which says, the truth shall set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> so the dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error, the only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. Now, Eliot has been very reticent about mentioning love in his quartets, like the, uh, like the poet who says uh, every poet should be uh, given a little card with 12 punches on it for the word beautiful and every time you use the word beautiful you get it punched and after you're finished that's all you can't use it anymore <laughs> 12 is way too many for the word beautiful but in, in any case uh, uh, Elliot has been spare in his use of the word love this is what it's all about for him you have to remember Elliot is a is a disciple of Dante and he knows from that uh, discipleship that it all comes down to love Dante had said, love is the motive force in the cosmos. 
All our vices come from perversions of it. All our virtues come from approximations of it. That's all there is. It's the motive force in the universe. And Eliot, though he spent a long time diagnosing the spiritual ills of his time, is, uh, is uh, convinced of the same truth. So, he says in the next stanza, who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. Suspire means to sigh. And you'll remember that the businessmen going to, over the London Bridge to work sigh. The passage is sighs short and infrequent were exhaled as each man fixed his eyes before his feet. Those entering hell sigh. And then there is the other sigh, which is the sigh of heartache, the purgatorial sigh or the sigh, of, uh, the, the sigh that attends the beatific vision at the, at the multifoliate road. So we're, to be alive is to sigh. Eliot got the word from Purgatorio, the Canto 25 of Purgatorio. Statius is a poet who attends, who walks with Virgil and Dante uh, partway up the Purgatorio mountain. And he gives a discourse on the generation of uh, of bodies and uh, the life of the, of the soul after death. And he speaks of those in purgatory like himself. And he says, This airy body lets us speak and laugh. With it we form the tears and sigh the sighs that you perhaps have heard around this mountain. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove. So that love, God, wove the shirt of flame. Now that's a reference to the story of Hercules and uh, Nessus that's uh, recounted uh, in several places prominently in Ovid's Metamorphoses where Hercules puts on the shirt of Nessus and it burns him to the point of uh, sacrificing himself on the pyre. Let's look at the setting. And the setting is the river. And we've already noted Eliot's attention to the river and uh, what happens at the riverside. The, the, as the story starts, the story of Hercules, it says, For homeward bound the heaven-born hero stood, he and his bride, before Evenus' flood. So the, the river of Evenus is in flood stage. And that is the condition which sets in motion uh, the events which result in this uh, in Hercules wearing the shirt of Nessus. Let me go back to the section three of the wasteland. Here's the problem. The river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink in the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. The nymphs are departed. 
The river bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer nights. The nymphs are departed. But at my back, from time to time, I hear the sound of horns and motors, which shall bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter in the spring. The nymphs are departed. The river is sunken, tumid. There's Mrs. Porter's as a whorehouse, which will bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter's in the spring. So that the the lack of ardor and passion and desire uh, culminates in a kind of empty, perfunctory, paid-for sexual ritual uh, in place of something more significant. And that section ends with twit, 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 jug, 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 so rudely forced. So the river represents that libidinal stream that is sunken in our time and that uh, we have crossed with bridges and now disregard, but occasionally it swells up. So, back to Ovid. Before Hercules reaches the river at which the uh, events surrounding the shirt of Nessus take place, he has fought with another river. There is another swollen river. Uh, this time, uh, Achilloas, who is a river god, perhaps the strong brown god, and uh, he is uh, he, he's telling the story about how he was once at flood stage to fight uh, Hercules. And he was fighting Hercules over... Uh, the woman who was to become the wife of Hercules, the Anira. And here's how uh, Achilloas tells the story. He's speaking of dear Anira. Most fair was she, a theme for hope and strife to not a few who sought the maid to wife. Her sire was Enos. With the rest, I came to ask her hand. Alcides, that's Hercules, Alcides did the same. And when the rest had left the field to two, finally it gets narrowed down to two. Girard says it always finally gets narrowed down to two. It becomes the, it becomes the, the case of the doubles. Or as Shakespeare has it with, with, in the case of Anthony and Caesar, then world thou hast a pair of chaps, no more. And throw between them all the food thou hast, they'll grind the one the other. So it finally comes down to the two, the mimetic configuration. And Achilloas says, And when the rest had left the field to two, my rival passed his titles in review. His father, Jove, his fame for labors done and victories at his stepdame's mandate won. The thought that he as yet not deified should outface me, a god, had stung my pride. And so they fought. And the river swells, and Hercules takes on his mighty form, and they fall. And they become mirror images of each other. And watch how Ovid describes that. Uh, Achillo is still speaking. We broke away, then closed again, and sealed our feet to earth, resolved no inch to yield. Foot locked to foot, fingers to fingers pressed, forehead to forehead, breast opposed to breast. Mirror images. That's the preliminary story the mimetic triangle. So now we have another contest over the same woman 
with Hercules and Nessus. For homeward bound, the heaven-born hero stood, he and his bride, before Evenus's flood, second swollen river. This is about swollen rivers and what happens at swollen rivers. What happens at swollen rivers is, what happens when the Tumid River rises? We turn it into mimesis instead of into what Dante turned it into. See, that's, that, that's to me, the point of all of this imagery. The libidinal stream swells and instinctively we turn it into mimesis and the conflictual mimesis and history and that kind of history. Strong-limbed and river-wise came Nessus there. And Nessus is a centaur. Everybody in the classical world knew what centaurs do when they get a chance. They rape women. The last person you would trust your beloved to is a centaur. <laughs> unless what you're trying to do is turn the swollen stream into another mimetic crisis. He looks over and there's the... Nessus, he says, I'll be happy to carry across the river. Hercules says, fine, fine. Unconsciously or semi-consciously aware of what's being set in motion. And Nessus rapes Deonira, or starts to, and Hercules kills him with an arrow. And as he's dying, hot blood of the centaur spewing from where he's been shot, he soaks his a cloak in his blood, gives it to Deonira, and says... If ever Hercules begins to look at another woman favorably, give him this gift because it's a love charm. And he dies. And Deonira takes this, this little cloak soaked in the centaur's blood and puts it aside in case it might be needed. Some years later, a rumor, and Ovid says, we don't know whether it was just a rumor or not, that Hercules is beginning to look uh, favorably on another woman, comes to Deonira, and she sends through a messenger the shirt of Nessus to Hercules, and he puts it on and it begins to burn inward to the bone. And he bellows out, and he can't take it off, the intolerable shirt of flame. And he bellows out his prayers. You see, the, the ground of our beseeching. He bellows out his prayers and puts, builds finally a pyre, the choice of pyre or pyre, and puts his arrows, his bow, and himself on the pyre and has it lit. And as the pyre is consuming him, Jove hears his prayers and makes him immortal and brings him into the, to the, into the heaven of the immortal ones. If the appetite and desire that's first awakened is in fact part of the, trans, part of the mystery of the multifoliate rose, there must be the struggle of transformation. One, the, the, giving up the mimetic operation, if I can use the Girardian terms for it, giving up those kind of triangular passions is a struggle. And Hercules, in this instance, represents the one who, who suffered the consequences of the mimetic operation and became transformed by it. So the God who is love uh, provides us with the intolerable shirt of flame which is another image for the purgatorial process. Expanding of love beyond desire is how Eliot talked about it. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Now, Eliot has said this in many places, most prominently in East Coker, but now that he's approaching the end, he's now this is the last section of the last quartet, 
he lets us know that we're going, we're now going to come we're now going to come resolve the thing. The end is where we start from. And every phrase and sentence that is right, every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the other, the word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce of the old and new, the common word exact without vulgarity, the formal word precise with excuse me, the formal word precise but not pedantic, the complete consort dancing together, every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning. So it's a reference to poetry, but it's also a reference to all of us who are words in the sense that Christ is the Logos word and all of us are uh, words as uh, co-inheritors of that mystery. So it's a, it's a, it's a picture of Concord, every poem an epitaph. That is to say, every attempt to express the mystery will fail. As, not, as Red Cloud says in Nyhart's poem, nothing we have tried to do or done is what the Spirit meant. Every poem is an epitaph over a failed attempt. And that's because every act is a failure. Every poem is an epitaph. And any action is a step to the block. One thinks again of Charles I. To the fire, down the sea's throat, or to an illegible stone. And that is where we start. We start at the, at the, at the end of the last failure, the last defeat. And we learn from that defeat what only defeats can teach us. If one wants in one's life to give expression to the complete mystery, then every attempt will be a failure. We die with the dying. See, they depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. I just think that is the most amazing thing. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. The rose here, I think, represents two things. It represents the moment in the rose garden, which is where these quartets started, which was a moment of Unexpected sudden illumination which stirred something, awakened something, awakened a longing. And the moment of the uh, experience of the multifoliate rose at the end of Dante's journey. And both of those are moments like that, like that, moments. The rose is a moment. And the moment of the yew tree. Now, the yew tree has has references to the to uh, the gate between the life and death. But Eliot has used the yew tree to mean the church. The moment of the church is a huge historical expanse. The church begins at Pentecost, the first Pentecost, and ends at the second coming. And huge, great, huge amounts of time span the 
the difference in terms of describing the, the mystery. So from the from Pentecost to the second coming is that's 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 what the the church does. The yew tree, the moment of the yew tree, goes from the Pentecost to the second coming. And the moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. That is to say, the moment of the rose, which is like that, also connects the Pentecost and the second coming. So that one doesn't have to one doesn't have to uh, console oneself by saying, oh, well, I lived as part of this great long movement, you see, and someday, by the by the by, somebody down the road will experience the second coming. And I did my little part. There is that, that sense of being in the tradition. But Eliot is saying the moment of the rose is of equal duration. That is to say, it, the Pentecost and second coming can be connected in one nanosecond if you're attentive at the right time and the right place. And he got this, I think, from Dante. Dante says, 25 centuries since... This is as the multifoliate rose is, is, is about to reveal to him the, the, the countenance of God. Dante says, 25 centuries since Neptune saw the Argo's keel, have not moved all mankind recalling that adventure to such awe as I felt in an instant. It's an unbelievable image because you get Neptune, this sort of thonic sea god, looking up and seeing the keel of the Argo, which is, in classical terms, the first great voyage of exploration. It's the first sign that the humans are on to something. And Neptune looks up and says, Oh my God, look at that. They're on to something. They've begun to move out. They're exploring something. They're wanting something. They're desiring something. They're looking around. And it's a fabulous image because it's the beginning of the, of the journey, the human journey. And Dante says 25 centuries. He locates it back. That's the beginning of the exploration. And Dante says the 25 centuries from that event to the present have not brought all mankind to such awe as I felt in an instant. And that's because the moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. But that's not to say we ignore our responsibilities in terms of the moment of the row, excuse me, in terms of the moment of the yew tree. The next thing Eliot says is, a people without history is not redeemed from time. For history is a pattern of timeless moments. We are in history, but we must not forget that the most important feature of the history, we're really, the, the true history of the world, the most important feature of it is whether or not we are attending to those moments. The moment in the rose garden, the moment uh, of winter lightning, the special moment, the moment when midwinter spring is its own season. So, while the light fails on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now and England. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are equal duration. 
History is now in England at this, at this rare moment. And he ends that passage with the line, with the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, which is a quotation from the second chapter of the Cloud of Unknowing. And that's a brief second chapter. The thrust of the chapter two of the Cloud of Unknowing is this, quote, your whole life now must be one of longing with the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling. Before I read the last passage, uh, I want to read Dante's uh, parallel. Dante is looking at the multifoliate rose. He says, I saw within its depths how it enfolds all things in a single volume bound by love of which the universe is the scattered leaves. I think I saw the universal form that binds these things. For as I speak these words, I feel my joy swell and my spirits warm. I yearn to know just how our image merges into that circle and how it there finds place. But mine were not the wings for such a flight. Yet, as I wished, the truth I wished for came, cleaving my mind in a great flash of light. Referring to that passage, T.S. Eliot said, that is the highest poetry has ever achieved and the highest it ever will achieve. It's still ineffable, but the truth is conveyed. We're talking about an adventure, an exploration. So he, he concludes, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And where did we start? Where did your adventure start and my adventure start? Somewhere back in what Eliot calls the Rose Garden. There was a moment when something happened and we knew our lives had been changed. And we began to long for something more. We were, as Walker Percy says, on to something. We began looking around and asking, where is the unimaginable zero summer? That was where we began. And after all our exploring, we arrive at the place where we began and we know the place for the first time. We now understand it. Through the unknown remembered gate. Now, these are references to scenes in the quartet. Through the unknown remembered gates, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Those moments, you see, when the waves of the sea wash it all away, but there's a moment between the two waves of the sea when we can be present to it. Quick now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. 
This is not naivete. This is the second naivete. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. And enfolded, of course, is Dante's term. And what Dante found is that desire that had first been awakened when he was nine and saw Beatrice had a direct relationship to the vision, the beatific vision of the countenance of God at the end of the paradise, at the end of the paradiso. So looking at the little girl in the red dress when he was nine was on a direct and 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 uh, continuous trajectory with his vision at, uh, of the beatific vision at, at the end of paradise. Because the world is enfolded in love. Earlier in this poem, Eliot had said, those men and those who opposed them and those whom they opposed accept the constitution of silence and are folded in a single party. And that's a version of the same thing. The world begins to look more of a piece than we ever imagined it to be. And the, flame, the tongues of flame are enfolded. The fires of appetite and desire, the Pentecostal fire, the purgatorial fire, the fire of high desire that Beatrice talks about in the purgatorial, the fire and the rose are one. And we could say a thousand things about that. But as I was thinking about it, I, I was thinking, Eliot is a, is a master poet. He leaves a passage which can, if we allow it, burn itself into our awareness and always have something more to say to us than any thing we can say about it. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire and the fire and the rose are one. So I was reminded of these lines from Richard Wilbur. I so often go back to Richard Wilbur. Uh, he's a... Uh, if if Eliot is, uh, is the, you know, Mount Everest of modern English poetry... Uh, Wilbur, and this is not taking a thing away from Wilbur, uh, because uh, his his he he was he was the poet that he was supposed to be. Uh, Wilbur gives us a a, a a range from which we can take the measure of Eliot. And Wilbur has a poem entitled "Advice from the Muse," in which uh, the muse is telling the poet. Uh, or what you have to do if you want to really communicate the true truth about the mystery of life. And these are excerpts from that poem. The, the muse says, still, and, and I use, I'm reading this in reference to the fire and the rosary one. The muse says, still, something should escape us. Something like a question one had meant to ask the dead. The day's heat come and gone in infrared. 
Enter a midnight of forgetfulness. Interpose a witness to provide, despite his inclination to be true, some fadings of the signal, as it were. A breath which, drawing closer, may obscure mirror or window with a token blur. That slight uncertainty which makes us sure. That slight uncertainty which makes us sure. The, the muse says to the poet, if you want to write something, if you want to write something that has the truth in it and will abide in the transmission of that truth, then it's going to have to have a slight uncertainty which makes us sure. And this last line, I think, has that. The fire and the rose are one. This concludes the reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.